Welcome to the Traveling Image Makers Podcast, your source of inspiration about travel photography. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride as we bring you on a tour around the world with our guests. Hi, this is Hugo Che, and this is the Traveling Image Makers podcast, the show where we interview famous and not so famous photographers and discover what compels them to travel many hours and cross many borders to get the shots. Our guest for this week's episode uh, likes to define herself as a Renaissance woman and photographer, making the invisible visible. She's a coach to gifted women, loves to connect people across industry and to wear polka dot dresses. She also has a huge number of interests that we will discuss later. But for now, let me just welcome Elsa Kramer to the show. Hi, Elsa. How are you doing? How was your day? Hey, I'm good. And I am, of course, wearing a polka dot dress. <laughs> Hello. So I just briefly skimmed the, the, the surface of your uh, profile or description of what you do and your interests and I'm right now looking at it in uh, on your um, clubhouse page because, as with uh, Charlotte, my guest last week, uh, we met on clubhouse, and the same with Elsa, we met on clubhouse in a in a room where we were not actually discussing photography; we were discussing the mm. Japanese language, if I remember well. Yes. So that that's another interest that we have in common, and I'm just going to. To look at a few of your of what you say in your bio there, and you you have you love Lego. That's, yes, <laughs> that's another thing we, oh we God, which yes. we don't have in common. But I um, would be happy to to hear about Lego. Uh, when you were in school, your career goal was to become a Kinder Egg designer. What yes. does a Kinder Egg designer do? Do you know the Kinder Eggs? Yeah, like the chocolate eggs, and inside they have a little capsule mm -hmm. with a toy. And inside the capsule, the toy is always different. And many times it's something that's actually much bigger than fits inside the capsule. So sometimes it's something really creative, like a roller coaster or something like that. And I, I was just like, I want to be the person that designs crazy things to go inside the Kinder Egg to surprise people. Nice. You're also connecting people through images. You're a smartphone photography teacher, which is very yes. interesting. I was the first smartphone photography teacher in Holland, actually. I started teaching smartphone photography, I think, 12, 13 years ago. When Back when smartphone photos were, I mean, the quality of the photos that you could get from a smartphone back then was yes. <laughs> quite a bit different from what you can get today. Yeah, right? but the thing is, it's always the same, right? The basic principles of photography are the same. So if you're a good photographer, you can take pictures with anything. Basically. Yeah. Because I started taking photos with really old cameras that are really difficult to operate. Mm. <laughs> in, nice. in the end, you 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 can get something out of them. Uh, you design and host interactive online events. You have a philosophy BA from King's College London, and you're interested in, amongst other things. Which so this is not a oh don't list. do that don't do the whole list <laughs> don't do that to people please just <laughs> Japanese okay we already said Japanese no uh, museums and fine art uh, we yeah when we discussed this uh, conversation what we wanted to talk we found out that we have a common interest in uh, in art and especially in how it it pertains to 
to photography as a visual art, yes. right? Modern mm -hmm. art, uh, science, games, uh, Goshuin. What's Goshuin? Ah, Goshuin. So this is very interesting. In Japan, if you go, do you ever go to shrines in Japan? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You visit shrines. Then you can get a stamp. So you can have like a pilgrim's um, book. Yeah. And you can present mine. it and they stamp it and they do beautiful calligraphy. I know. Yeah. So I, got, uh, I got my little book of... Uh, stamps from from various japanese temples then i didn't know it was called goshuin or maybe I ah, if you look it up on instagram you can follow it and see all the best temples like you know as like a if you follow the goshuin hashtag and so i add them to my wish list to visit next in japan when i go to japan again. and then classical music bluegrass folk so different types of music anime of course printing and podcasts and medieval monsters. <laughs> yes. Well, I really like, I like, I love medieval, medieval manuscripts um, because they're so fun to look at. I mean, they're amazing. And there's this guy, I, I can't recall his name. It will come to me maybe. Oh yeah, Daniel Kempf. Um, he, he's done a whole book on medieval monsters. He's like an expert in, in medieval manuscripts. He's on Twitter and he shares some amazing imagery every day and, yeah, I love it. They're bestiaries, I think they were called, those manuscripts with collections mm -hmm. of strange yes. animals and so on, right? Yes, yeah, cool. exactly. Very inspiring. And you're learning Japanese, like me. Uh, I, you, I, 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 I have to say your Japanese is much better than mine. I need to practice more. Currently living <laughs> in Rotterdam, of all places, <laughs> in the Netherlands, yes. but planning to live in Japan and dreaming of a house near the sea. So lots of uh, lots of interest. Where where do we start? <laughs> Let's start with art because I travel the world to um, not just see places and take pictures, but I actually travel the world to visit museums and look at art. Mm. So I am like a crazy art addict. And before lockdown, I think the year before lockdown, um, I went maybe especially in Europe to twenty cities or something just going from museum to museum to museum, like, and just loving every second of it. Um, discovering new art, uh, looking at pictures I already knew, but I'd only seen online or in a book, and learning from them. And I think you told me that you you use, oh no, you use art in your, in your teaching, right? You, you tell your students about the, the importance of, of visual arts and how you can use yes. them. How they, can they use it to improve their photography? I want to expand a little bit on that? Yeah, of course. So I started teaching photography again a long time ago, again, I think 2009. And what I realized is that um, a lot of people, even if they understood some basic principles of photography, they still, and they had amazing, like the new digital cameras, they still weren't taking great pictures. And I was like, what's going on with that? Um, and then I realized they aren't, training their eye, right? They don't know how to look at things and they don't know about composition, et cetera, et cetera. So I decided this is what I'm going to teach. I'm not going to teach like, how does your Nikon or your, your Canon work? You know, you do your DSLR, nothing of that. I'm going to teach people how to train their eye to develop it um, and how to become a better photographer in that sense. So I've, yeah, I've been doing that for a very long time and I love using art. So my most recent course was on um, learning 
from the masters of the light, like the old master painters, how to use the light. So I was teaching through Rembrandt, Monet, Caravaggio, um, all these artists, how are they using the light and what can you learn from them as a photographer when it comes to taking pictures? And it's so much fun because um, it helps students and also me to like, again, look at works of art in a completely different way. Like you think you know a piece of art, but you've probably not spent like 15 minutes looking at it and studying it. And it's so rewarding. And then you get it like to be your teacher. So basically I always say, oh, today Rembrandt is our teacher. Right. We're learning from Rembrandt. We're looking at what he's doing um, or Caravaggio when it comes to direction is incredible. Like, you know, leading the eye um, through the image. Uh, yeah. And people love it because they get to see the artworks in a completely different light as well as becoming better photographers. It's kind of obvious to me saying, OK, those masters, have, of course, Rembrandt and Caravaggio that you quoted, they were masters in the, in the way they used light. But. They also use light in, in very different ways and in very specific ways as well. So it's one thing to say, okay, look at the picture and improve your eye, train your eye to use, to recognize good light and so on. It's quite another maybe to, to give some more specific directions like, okay, I'm looking at the Caravaggio painting and what, what, what was Caravaggio doing that was so special that other painters in his era were maybe not doing or doing differently? Well, of course, first of all, he was very bold, right? And very dramatic. So his lightning, there is so much um, contrast in it and so much drama. Um, and especially like, for, say, for example, you're a portrait photographer and you're wondering how can I add more excitement or more drama to my pictures? You can just look at Caravaggio. And he's using the clairobscuro, the... Uh, contrast between light and dark um, to add like an atmosphere, a dramatic atmosphere. And of course, to immediately tell the person looking at the picture, like this is where you have to look, right? It's like a spotlight in the theater. That's mm -hmm. the way you use it. And then especially um, there's this painting, um, what is it called? Where, where the disciples recognize, all of a sudden they recognize they're, they're having uh, a meal mm -hmm. with um, Jesus, right? And there's the light coming through the window and it's, it's, it's moving down. And then there's the arm gesture and there's so many arrows, basically. So he also uses the light as a directional uh, thing to, to say, look, this is where it's happening. This is where the eye needs to go. And there's so much you can learn from that as a photographer. I think that was the what called the, the dinner at Emmaus. Or, or yes, the, thank you. That's yeah, it. That exactly. I don't remember where yeah. it is. Now, one of my favorites, uh, Caravaggio's, especially in the, the way he used light, also in a, in a metaphorical way, is the, well, I don't know how it's called in English, it's probably something like the, the vocation or the call of uh, St. Matthew, which Let is a painting, is in, is in the, um, in the Church of San Luigi dei Francesi, it's the French church in Rome, very close to Piazza Navona. And the scene is that ah, uh, yes. Matthew was... Uh, um, a tax collector, I believe. So uh, he was around this group of people in a, inside a room, sitting at a table, counting money, essentially. And then there's Jesus enters the room from the right, together, I think it was with St. Peter, and he points his finger at Matthew, calling him to come with him, and then Matthew lifts his head. And there's this light which is coming, you imagine, it's, it's actually out of the frame, but you imagine it's coming from the open, the door that was just open, 
and he illuminates the scene and the faces of the of the people there and that's a, also a metaphor of the light of god's grace that is exactly. hitting those people and some are responding to it like matthew and others are not responding to it there's a, a guy who keeps his head down looking mm. counting his money and not being uh, bathed in, in God's uh, grace light. So it's a very metaphor. But even if you just discount, I mean, you ignore, you can ignore the whole metaphor and just uh, admire the way that he painted that uh, that painting and that shaft of light that's come from, from the right. It's very dramatic. Yes, it creates that, that chiaroscuro effect, which uh, also helps to give a lot of three-dimensionality to the photo. I mean, there are some... Yes. Because uh, I don't remember who said it that, right, uh, light illuminates, but shadows define. This is how you define the shape. It's the interplay of light and shadow. Exactly. And this is another thing. Um, if you want to learn how light sculptures objects, I mean, of course, I mean, this is what many photog photographers probably know. Uh, light, Science and Magic It's this classic book on photography mm -hmm. about how to light still lives, etc., uh, but painters, of course, excel at this. Like, how do I show drapery? How do I show a vase, right? So there's so much there to, to learn from as well. So basically, when you go into a museum, you can just, there's any painting, right? You can go and mm -hmm. like, what? how is the painter suggesting depth? How is he suggesting volume, etc.? How is he using the light to model the shapes? And this you can also do as a photographer. and um, you know, how do you make decisions about that? So that's basically the first question, right? What is it I want to convey with my photograph? What do I want to show people? What do I want to happen to them when they look at the picture? And then what does that mean for the decisions I'm going to make about light, etc.? So it's the same. I think it's a similar thing that painters have to go through if you're really, you know, thoughtful about your photography. It's very different. There's another painting that just came to my mind, and it is the beheading of St. John. Yes. And it's in the Cathedral of St. John's in Malta, Valletta. And besides the really daring use of light, also the composition is uh, kind of unusual because there's the, the main group of traditional painting. Uh, yeah, you painting, have the triangular composition. A, like, yeah. yeah. Depicting the a... a traditional religious religious scene you would have the main subject dead in the center yes. surrounded by angels and so on but here all the this group of five people they're all in the bottom left corner occupying only a quarter of the photo and then the rest of the photo is occupied by this door doorway and a, and a window and a, a person looking through the window looking at the scene from inside the building and it's yes and just catching absolutely. a little bit of the light yeah yeah Whereas, I mean, you, you mentioned Monet, completely different approach to light, right? A dreamy light. Yes. And, and Monet, I always use um, to teach white balance, right? So I have students mm -hmm. who don't know about white balance yet um, and, and what it means. And you do you know the haystacks or the Rouen Cathedral? Like he did Rouen so Cathedral, many Cathedral, yes. And, yeah. Right. So you can see basically how the light changes. Right, the color of the light in all his paintings. And in the haystacks, uh, specifically in the shadows, you can see the different colors of the light. Right, So this is what I do with my students. So I say, okay, if you really want to understand white balance, you have to understand that light has a color. Right, So 
look what he did. Like he he painted the facade of the cathedral. He had did you know he actually had a studio like right opposite? <laughs> so you could just sit there every day and like paint the facade. So this is what I make them do. I say find a building near where you live and just go see it like as much as you can in as many different conditions as you can and then take a picture of it. And then, you know, like in raw and then try to correct using the white balance for what you think is the best, but also become really aware of seeing the color of the light. I want them to develop a kind of intuition, like an antenna, like, oh, right, now the light is perfect for this kind of photography, right? I always say I have like, you know, my eighth sense is a sense for light. And I just know when I'm sitting in my studio, I just know, oh my God, the light is changing to this specific color and, and quality. And I have to run outside and take a picture. And that's what I want for them to. So I had to go and check and uh, Monet painted more than 30 different versions mm -hmm. of the facade of the Rouen Cathedral. And most of the composition is mostly always the same, but the light is completely different. So he right. got, went there different times of the day to to study. Yes. What I like about Monet in general, aside from this, but this is very exemplary of, of his style in that with respect to Caravaggio, he uses the light to define shapes and objects that are there, physically there, present in mm -hmm. the scene. They're very yes. real, very... He was a realist, one of maybe the first... Uh, realistic painter of Renaissance, right? It was he was depicting, he was taking, using people from the street as his models. Yes, exactly. Prostitutes, young boys, and and so on. To uh, as subjects, Real he was people. depicting them realistically. Whereas Monet, it's like his subjects are made of light. Yes. Right. So the cathedral in Rouen is completely transfigured, and it's built of this shimmering light. And it's not a cathedral anymore. It's maybe the idea of a cathedral, of the well, idea of the light. In that light. sense, it's much closer to photography. It's You can look at it, if you look at it, like, through your eyelashes, it, it is almost like pixels. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. you know, it, it is um, just a made-up experience, which, you know, a digital photograph is as well. It's a suggestion. Maybe another one that come to mind we thought about those pixels is uh, Seurat. You know, mm, so of course, yes. Yeah, it is a, a pointillist picture where you, if you look close, there's just little dots of color, and um, but still the, the light in um, in Seurat's paintings uh, is amazing. It's uh, it's not realistic, doesn't look really natural, but it's uh, uh, like their subjects are. Uh, how do you say it in English? Uh, Redescent is that the right pronunciation? And uh, Reticent. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And when it comes to light, what I also always love to do, um, both with my students and when I'm in a museum, is uh, what kind of quality light is it? So with Car Car Caravaggio, it's really hard light, right? So you get mm -hmm. hard shadows and hard delineation. Um, and some other paint painters use very soft light, right? Like the, we have the same choice as a photographer if we're working in the studio. So what choices have they made and what are the results of those choices? For, for example, for portraiture or for still life. Um, so it's just to look, to go through a museum and just ask yourself, okay, so what, what kind of light? Is it soft light? Is it hard light? Where is it coming from? And then kind of reverse engineer, like how did the painter, quote unquote, light this scene, 
right? So this is a really fun game you can play as a photographer and it can be also really teach you how to see light and uh, think about it when you want to recreate that kind of lighting. Yeah, uh, another topic that I think is worth exploring is that of color. Because mm. of how different painters use the color and uh, Van Gogh, for example, comes to mind. With yes. The, the bright colors, warm colors or contrast between bright and uh, warm and cool colors. He is the, the like the king of complementary color. So mm -hmm. it's so interesting. There's in so many of his paintings, there is orange and blue or green and red, right? He's always using those juxtapositions and it works so well. Um, I'm trying to think of a famous painting. There's a, I think it's a painting in the National Gallery, but I, I'm not sure it's on the website. Um, the Crabs which is like red and green. And then many bridge paintings he did are like, and, and also many of the paintings he did in Aula, um, they all have that orange and blue uh, contrast. And it just works so well. It's incredible. And once you know that and you look at all his work here, like, oh my God, it's here, it's here, it's here again. It's just like, it's almost, it's, you know, he, it's the way he, he creates like a kind of tension um, but it does, it's not like a kind of annoying tension, right? It's, it's, it works really, really well. True. Another masters of colors would be uh, Cezanne and Matisse, especially. Mm. In my view. Matisse is another one who used very bold, um, complementary colors, primary colors for, for the most part in, uh, in many of his uh, paintings. Uh, if you, if you, to take a photo today and make it look like a Matisse, people would say, oh, you went with the saturation slider all the way to the right. Exactly, yeah. But, it, but that works for Matisse, so. Absolutely. Yeah. And another thing that I always do, I also like to look at modern painters. Um, so, for example, Francis Bacon, mm -hmm. um, his portraits, where you have the heads just completely morphed um, and they become incredibly expressive. Right. And this is what I also make my students recreate. So I have them make selfies like Francis Bacon-esque selfies with which is like a scream or their face just morphs with a, like a long exposure. Um, and this is also really interesting to see, like, how do you suggest movement as a photographer? Like, you know, you can um, when you use a long exposure, it can be really fun to play with. And you get this kind of painterly quality. Yeah. That would be an interesting uh, exercise. I mean, I, I like that. Well, <laughs> and some students are like, no, I look so ugly. But it's like, no, this is the point. It's like, if you you know Francis Bacon's Pope's, like, and all, all the other mm -hmm. um, paintings, it's, it's it's not pretty, right? And it's But it's oh. not about that. It's not about beauty. It's about human suffering. Um, yeah. And that's another very interesting thing to look into as a photographer. I mean, it's, you know... Sure, we all love pretty pictures and pretty people, but it, it can be very interesting to also go to the dark side. Yeah, I think sometimes we are too, as photographers, uh, reflected about this in the past, and sometimes we are too taken up by the subject itself. Mm. Right? Because it's a beautiful subject, that does not necessarily mean that it's going to be a beautiful picture. Absolutely. There should be something else because everybody is is able to take a photo of a beautiful subject. Yes, it's it's the easy part, right? 
And so it's not a good photo because the subject is beautiful. It helps, of course. People are like looking at pleasing subjects, probably more so than a Francis Bacon painting. But yes. if that's all we do, I mean, as photographers, that doesn't say a lot about, about us. Then, okay, well, I can be a very competent photographer of, I don't know, I can photograph watches, watches for a catalog, beautiful watches, and I can do it very uh, competently. I can put them in the best light. And that's, uh, I mean, exactly. I'm not discounting the work of those photographers because they do a great job doing that specific job. But that is something that, yeah, helps sell a watch. It's exactly. difficult for me to characterize it as art and seeing, uh, maybe I'm, I'm mistaken about that. I don't want to sound like I'm discounting well, that. Kind you know, of... I don't, I'm not so interested in the definition whether it's art or not art, but um, more like how, you know, how interested is it also for you and what do you want to do and convey and how do you want to spend your time, right? So it can be super interesting, especially, um, what, you know, whilst you're sort of on your path of photography to learn how to photograph a glass bottle perfectly, right? Without the reflections, et cetera, et cetera. Learn to do all the metal and stuff. But once you've mastered that, what's next, right? What, what, what are you, where are you going to go next? So to me, it's never um, satisfying to then stay there and say, well, I, I can do this technical thing. No, where can I take it? How can I use it differently than other people have used it? Um, how can I bend it, morph it, um, completely turn it around? You know, that just makes it much more fun to play with. There is a quote by Minor White, a photographer of the past, who said, I don't know if you know this, one should not only photograph things for what they are, but for what else they are. One does not photograph something simply for what it is, but for what else it is. Else, like your name. <laughs> exactly. I like it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, I happen to think about that quote and try to understand what White really wanted to say there. It's, uh, it can be interpreted in many ways. Yes, absolutely. I mean, when you... You know, there's so many ways of looking at things. You can have like the typology, uh, like what the Bechers did with all the, you know, different pictures of the same thing. The, um, in a way, capturing the essence, almost, of, you know, here speaks, speaks the philosopher, the platonic ideal of something. Like what is the mm -hmm. essence of a tower, for example, of a church tower, et cetera, et cetera. So that's really interesting. But yeah, what is the soul of something can be a completely different question, right? And also very interesting. And then what does it mean to me? Or what? how is it relevant right now to my life? Right? So there's so many. I just love asking questions. And asking questions makes um, creating art, but also looking at art so much more interesting, I think. That's probably because I do have a background in philosophy. <laughs> so it's, it's really natural um, to me. The, the way I interpret that phrase is by thinking that it what is what I'm aiming to to capture to to, to transmit when I take photos yeah. it's not so much a message I hear people are saying you know, a lot of times say what's what's the meaning of this photo what what were you trying to to convey what's the concept I mean a, photography doesn't have to be conceptual doesn't have to have to always have a specific meaning but it's important to go beyond the pure subject and what I try to 
to convey is a sense of the relationship I have with what I'm photographing, mm. which right. is it's not the same relationship that other people might have either looking at the same subject or looking at the same photo. I mean, we don't exactly. all think the same. Uh, and But still, uh, I'm, you, you want to put in, in your photo something of yourself. The photo yes. is about the photographer as much as it is about the thing being photographed. And I love that you're saying that because many of my students sometimes think, oh, but this picture has already been taken so many times, et cetera, et cetera. And then I tell them, no, but it's not being taken by you, right? You bring your own unique vision, your your whole story, everything you've seen in your life, the experiences you have, you know, the sadness, the joy, the happiness, everything you know, that, you know, what you've seen in the world, you bring all that to the picture. So it will always be your picture, not someone true okay so i think uh, we discussed a little bit about art which is probably the topic that is uh, closest to to your uh, to your soul but what about japan let's talk <laughs> we, this is a show about travel photography right? yes just so, everybody go to japan it's the most amazing country <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, I've been in love with Japan since I was 11, I think. Mm -hmm. um, so Have you been I there many family, times? I've not. I've only been twice oh. so far. And a family member gave me this book on Japanese gardens, I think, in autumn or something. And I looked at the book. It was a picture book. And I was just like, this is so beautiful. I have to go here. I just, like, knew it. Um, and ever since I've been obsessed with Japan, I... Practice Aikido, got my black belts in that. Um, started learning Japanese on and off throughout my life. And I've always also been really interested in Japanese art. So I discovered Hokusai and then many other um, Kyoe artists. Also more contemporary Japanese artists, photographers, etc. So yeah, I. it's just such an incredible country. And what I love, many one of the many things I love is their attention to detail and their obsession with process, right? Mm. Like it has to be really, really good. And they're happy to like, you know, learn, like you have these living monuments, which are craftspeople, sometimes a hundred years old, and they have just practiced and practiced and got better by doing and doing it again and doing it again. Um, and now they are just, you know, basically sublime at what they do. And I love that, this sort of devotion to their craft. I think that's very special. It is indeed. And what I find interesting about Japan, of course, is the mix of uh, modern and ancient and the way they managed to make it live side by side. Yeah, and ugly and beautiful. I mean, Tokyo is so ugly, of course, and so beautiful, for example. Why, why would you say that Tokyo is ugly? I mean, well, you have like all the new like cement buildings, you know yeah. what I mean? There is so much like... Um, new ugly architecture is like a, a, a cement desert almost if you look at it from one perspective and then there is like all the beauty the crazy high towers um all that i mean it's such a mix of, of beautiful things and ugly things yeah but maybe we can say it's ugly like many other modern cities i mean it, to me it doesn't look ugly it, in many parts it looks like 
yeah, just another huge city with uh, too many buildings, too much, uh, too little, uh, too many, too few parks, and so on. There are many beautiful yeah. parks, but there's also a lot of concrete, concrete jungle. So it's Absolutely. not particularly inspiring in, in many respects. I'm, I'd rather be in an ancient European city, more interesting than, than, than Tokyo in that respect. I mean, Tokyo also had the misfortune of being kind of raised to the ground during World War II. Mm, so exactly. I guess we cannot complain yeah. it too much about it's it. Same, well, I know this because Rotterdam is exactly the same. Yeah. The city I live in now. So it was destroyed in the war. Um, so the city center is very ugly. <laughs> Basically, I mean, ugly is very interesting. There's amazing architecture. And I'm, you know, just to make sure I love ugly. I mean, I photograph ugly, like quote unquote ugly. I think it's very interesting. Um, but what I love about Japan that you can wander around in Tokyo and it, it, it is a, like a concrete jungle and then you will turn a corner and there'll be like a shrine there or a temple, mm -hmm. right? And you're like, what? You know, it's almost like uh, you go back in time. It's like time travel, like just around the corner and you're in this completely different world and you can go in and, you know, just forget everything out there, the, the, the busyness, um, and there'll be like this oasis, which I, I think you do get that in Europe, like in, in Catholic churches, like in the big um, churches, it's something similar, but I love that. Yeah, it got me thinking that also another thing that photographers should learn about and learn to observe is architecture, mm, not just paintings, because especially modern architecture, uh, in some respects, I find that some some architects have a, a way of um, handling the way light illuminates the building that they yes. that they design. And there's a perfect example in Rotterdam um, from uh, Rem Koolhaas, the famous Dutch mm -hmm. architect. He wrote this. He sorry. He built this huge building called the Rotterdam, which is actually opposite my studio where I live, and it's on the riverfront. And in doing this, he just created a huge reflector. So. The entire light in the whole like area has changed because of this building. It's it's just so weird. Like the whole atmosphere is different because he made this giant reflector. And I love that. And it's so, you know, it's got little slats. So it will look very interesting, whatever kind of light you do have and whichever direction it's coming from. But also I think what people um, sometimes don't see is like the sight line. So that's another thing he's really good at. So there's many streets in Rotterdam. If you like um, walk on that street and you, you look like in the distance, it will be like a perfect vanishing point towards this huge building, right? He's positioned it in a way that you can see it from many different points in the city, almost like a views of Mount Fuji. You know? like, <laughs> there's many perfect ways with vanishing points to see it. So that's also, you know, it's not just the building in itself, but how... Has the architect kind of appointed it? How's it looking back at the city and at the observer? If people are interested in uh, in good lighting in relationship to architecture, one building that I can recommend, not so much from the exterior, which to me, well, maybe because it's unfinished, we'll have to judge it when it's finished, is the Sagrada Familia in ah. Barcelona by Gaudi. And... It's interesting from the outside. It's certainly unique, unusual, but again, it's unfinished. So we will mm. see when it's finished how it actually looks like. But seeing from the 
the, um, the models, it doesn't actually strike me as, a, as something that I would love, but the interior uh, is, a, is absolutely amazing. Um, and especially, I mean, definitely recommend that to go there in the early morning or late afternoon because mm. the, the whole uh, nave of the, the church is, uh, it has those uh, stained glass windows and they are blue-green on the eastern side and orange-yellow-red on the western side. So depending on the time of the day, the light in the interior of the cathedral changes completely. And most of the structure of the interior is white. So when the light hits those glass, those windows and enters the cathedral, it's all colored and reflects all the pillars and the various walls in different colors like a kaleidoscope. Yeah, it's, it's like uh, a light It's show. really beautiful to, to look at. That sounds amazing. So go to Barcelona. I would love to go back to Barcelona, one of my mm. favorite places in the world. Also for, for modern architecture, Barcelona is, a, is an amazing place. Yes. And also for art and also to just go to the beach. <laughs> <laughs> True. And eat some really good food. I, I don't oh, have wow. to go to Barcelona for the beach, but yeah. No, you're, and you're in Italy, so you, you, you already have good food. Yeah. All right. So really love talking with you. I guess we should do this again and just go again through your huge list of interests and maybe <laughs> talk about Lego. I don't know anything about Lego except that I used to play with it when I was a kid or um, Aikido or uh, anything else. Bluegrass. I don't know. That's not my kind of music, but maybe I should start to I learn know. to appreciate it. <laughs> Or you don't like need him. to do anything. Have you seen like uh, what's that movie with um, George Clooney, where he does his hair all the time? No. By the Coen Brothers, it will come to me. Well, anyway, that's that's a, a new movie has bluegrass music. So that ah, uh, yeah, um, I know what is. Uh, oh, brother, where art, where art thou? That's it. Yeah, brother, where art thou? Yes. Yeah. So that's bluegrass. That's bluegrass. Good. I'll go Very good movie. Look for and it that's another Netflix. thing, by the way. Like, if you want to get better at photography, okay. <laughs> if you haven't yet, anybody who wants to like appreciate good composition, Once Upon a Time in the West. Uh. Seriously, watch it. Pause the video. Like, look at the screen. What is he doing? Like the framing. It is just incredible. It is so good. It's a whole. I could do a, teach a whole course like on. Composition in Once Upon a Time in the West. It is outstanding. I watched that when I was much younger, so I don't remember it well. I was not into photography at the time, so I sort of okay. So you it. have to rewatch it because mm -hmm. it will be it will blow your mind. Seriously. Um, no, my my favorite when it when it comes to photography in cinema would be Kubrick. Ah, yeah, fair enough. We will do another episode talking about cinema and its relationship to photography. Let's prepare some examples and show people sure. how they can uh, get inspiration from movies. To, I mean, photography is a big part of movies, right? Exactly. Like, I mean, you have like uh, the director of photography, right? Who is yeah. um, responsible for, I think, the lighting and, the, and the, also the composition of the shots yeah. and stuff. So, yeah. And there's much, much, much fun to be had there. Into you, you will never. I mean, the thing is, I am so. Um, how do you say that? I, I. It's almost impossible for me now to look at a movie like in a normal way. Mm -hmm. without, 
you know, sort of getting into the story because I was re-watching um, another incredible movie, The Budapest Hotel, ah. right? If you want to, like, styling, color. Mm. I mean, Wes Anderson, is, I think he's a complete genius. Um, but, yeah, I'm just sitting there doing, oh, my God, I can't believe they've done this. This is so clever visually, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, sometimes I just need to shut up and enjoy the story. There, there well. is no single frame in a Wes Anderson movie that doesn't, that is not thought right right designed uh very specifically for with a very specific yeah. look and style in mind he's he's very consistent yeah. with, with what he does yes uh, repeating those uh, uh there's, there's a series of video videos on youtube about uh, like every single tableau scene in wes anderson movies <laughs> oh wow i'll have to check that out that would be amazing Okay, good. So we have uh, we have something to for our next conversation, I guess. I don't want to absolutely use up more of your time, uh, but I would I would love to to do it again. So before I'd we... be happy to. I'm always happy to talk about photography, art, and films, and anything else. Me too. So before we wrap this up, do you want to let people know where they can find you? Oh, great question. Um, www.kramersi, I think it's .com, let me just check. Oh, it's .net, mm -hmm. kramersi.net. And this is where um, I, I had like a micro podcast for a while, where every day I did a podcast for about 10 minutes, talking about art, looking at art, looking at the world with fresh eyes. So if you're interested in this kind of looking, this way of looking and, and using basically anything you see in the world as inspiration, Go check out Kramer's Eye and uh, yeah, have fun with that. Good. And you're also on Clubhouse, of course. We said so. You're on LinkedIn as Else as in Frozen. <laughs> yeah, because so many people, like, if they're not from Europe, they, they uh, get my name wrong. So they say Else because it's spelled like E-L-S-E. So I just always say, oh, it's Elsa as in Frozen. And mm. then, you know, it makes it easier. So I thought I'd just put it in my name and now people remember me. <laughs> That's fun. Okay, we'll put a link to that in the in the show notes. And uh, for now, I just want to thank you again for uh, for your time today. Really inspiring conversation. And as I said, I hope My we can pleasure. repeat it. I'd love to. Have a great evening. You too. Bye. Bye. <laughs>